Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to talk a lot of, about a lot of interesting topics. And we're joined by Dr. Matthew Cook, who is a former anesthesiologist and a physician and uh, has uh, a very in interesting practice in San Jose, California, where he does some regenerative medicine techniques. And we're going to talk in great detail about this because it's really very unusual clinic that most that is provides therapies that really isn't provided most anywhere else. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's totally a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So you're another person that I met at the Bulletproof or Upgrade Labs event. So I'm interest, interestingly uh, had interviews with four people that I met at that event and you're one of the four. I had first heard of your work through Ben Greenfield and uh, you had done a lot of work with him and I was impressed with some of the results that you were getting. So I think probably is best to start because we really didn't get into details of what you're doing, but one of the work pieces that you work that you're doing is with NAD, which is one of my favorite biomolecules. So uh, why don't you tell us your story briefly so we can understand why, how you wound up where you are and then practicing and uh, practicing the type of medicine that you are now. Okay, so I um, <clears throat> went to medical school and did an anesthesiology residency at UCSF and uh, was in musculoskeletal medicine uh, doing anesthesia and I was doing regional anesthesia. So I was basically doing nerve blocks all day, every day and looking with an ultrasound, finding nerves and then putting those nerves to sleep. And then after I did that, um, doing sedation for surgeries. And so I figured out basically how to do almost every surgery from total knee replacement to shoulder surgery without having to do general anesthesia. And then I sort of evolved into finding out that I could uh, fix a lot of those problems either by treating nerves or treating ligaments, tendons, fascia, and joints. And so I started a regenerative medicine practice and as part of my journey of doing that, I found that NAD was one of the most powerful tools in terms of resetting human biological systems. And so I started incorporating, putting it into different protocols. And so that's probably one thing we can start to talk about. Okay, great. And that's one of my fascinations with the work that you're doing is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, NAD is one of my favorite biomolecules. And let me give you provide a brief prescription for those who are not familiar with it. It's a, it's a, it's a, I would go as far to say a critical, certainly a vital coenzyme in your body. There, it, it's a part of a family. It's NAD plus NADH, which is the reduced form, and NADPH, which is the phosphorylated form, and NADP, uh, NADP plus. So NADPH and NAD plus are the really two important biomolecules. And my, uh, fascination with them is pretty much from a theoretical perspective. And the reason why I'm so intrigued with your work is I don't really know many clinicians who have embraced the understanding of this and applied it clinically, like you're doing on a daily basis. So I really value the feedback that you're getting from this. And as far as I know, you're really on the cutting edge of providing NAD therapeutically. And virtually maybe you have a better handle on this, but I think there's virtually very few clinicians, only a handful of the country who are using this outside of centers that are using it for the treatment of addictions. And, and, it, and I didn't know this until recently because one of my friends is one of the top NAD researchers in the U S 
clinical researchers. He doesn't, he doesn't see patients, but he does clinical trials. And uh, he showed me a paper where this was actually used, NED Plus, for a treatment of addictions, in a paper published in 1961, literally 60 years ago. So it's been used for a long time, but really for some of the metabolic interventions that you're using is relatively recent, but it certainly has been established for addiction. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's essential for over 700 enzyme, enzymatic reactions in your body, mm -hmm. really the ones that run the mitochondria and, and without NAD levels, you will die, optimize, you will die prematurely. No, no doubt in my mind, in fact, probably in my current view is the primary reason why people are dropping dead after late seventies, eighties and nineties, because their NAD levels are in the dirt. And that's exactly what you'd predict. If you don't have NAD, you just, you cannot survive. So why don't you uh, expand on your specific clinical experience and fascination with it and what you've learned? Because it's, it's, it's just, this is at the fork. This is the absolute cutting edge of clinical science as far as I'm in my book. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And so then, if you if you if you start by uh, the experience uh, from the addiction space, and then I'll, and and I like to say that everything that I do is somewhat derivative of of that experience, uh, because people have been using uh, NAD or its precursors, for example, niacin in addiction since since the 60s. William Hitt was one person who was doing it. Uh, early on in AA, uh, niacin was an important component of the protocol, but that ended up uh, coming out of the protocol. And of the 700 enzymes that NAD catalyzes, uh, one of them is alcohol dehydrogenase. And every time an alcohol molecule is broken down, uh, two NAD plus molecules uh, are consumed. And uh, what has been discovered through that experience is, is that people who have alcohol addiction, and there's a similar experience with toxicity and a similar experience with opioids, is that, and all other substances for the most part, because they require uh, coenzyme uh, assisted. Uh, 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 re oxidation reduction reactions to be broken down. And so daily continuous long-term exposure to these toxins ends up leading to a, a very uh, extensive depletion in the NAD levels. And our NAD levels probably drop by 90% from age one to age 90. And so we can do a lot to either uh, prevent that or accelerate that in the case of addiction. And so I started uh, my experience by treating people with addiction and had fairly profound results in terms of repleting people's total body stores by giving people a 10-day IV experience. Okay. And I, I should preface it to say that at this point, there is no really commercially available test to measure NAD levels. It's just a research tool. And uh, my association with this, one of this, these researchers is I have access to this technology now. We're going to be using it. But it's only available for research. Uh, and then that there's two ways to augment NAD levels. One is a precursor. As you mentioned, niacin is one of them, which is far better than niacinamide. But more commonly, people are using nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide, and otherwise known as NR and NMN, which after studying this pretty carefully, um, I'm not a big I mean, it's okay, but I don't think 
that's where the action is. The action is with the real molecule because there's a lot of reasons why those precursors are not going to optimize your NAD levels. They'll help, but they won't get it to where they really need to do. And that's why I'm really intrigued with your work because you're using the real molecule, which can, which typically you cannot swallow this thing. It has to be administered parentally, uh, which means it's either IV, sub-Q, transdermally, or, or submucosal through like a sublingual or, or even transrectal. But um, so why don't, why don't you expand on that? Because that, that's, again, this is the leading edge, I believe, in really bringing people to back to where you can restore their health and, and then not only addiction, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg, which has been traditionally used. I think it's, there's so many other reasons, purpose, uh, applications. So I'd like you to extend on the applications that you've found. <clears throat> we've, so one thing I can tell you is, is that uh, of the myriad 700 uh, things that it does, one thing that it can do is it can, uh, uh, turn on certain enzyme systems. It can turn on DNA repair. It can turn on sirtuins, which are super important. And then it's critical to multiple enzymatic pathways within the mitochondria where we make all of our energy. And so just as a, a simple example, there's mitochondria and nerves. And so one thing that I found is people that have nerve pain, people that have neuropathic pain, if I give them NAD, and I've used every single one of the routes that you mentioned, uh, nerve pain will go down. It turns out if I give NAD surrounding a stem cell therapy or any regenerative medicine therapy, the therapy seems to work better. If uh, I have people who have chronic illness, uh, it, NAD seems to help turn the immune system on and, and get the immune system functioning. It helps people start to detox and get their detox pathways going. So I'll use it in those cases. Uh, I've noticed that uh, it improves cognitive function. It helps people uh, recover from uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, from concussions. Uh, it, it, I think it's very, very profound in terms of the what happens in terms of the central and peripheral nervous system. And I spend a lot of time treating patients with a myriad of conditions from Parkinson's and dementia uh, to peripheral neuropathy. And I've seen improvements in all of those areas. And my approach to almost all of those problems is very uh, multifactorial. Uh, multimodal, and uh, and so NAD is one of the tools that I use, but I, I find it uh, to be uh, very helpful. So, and 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 I think that the key, and I think we're going to kind of get into this, is it's in biological systems there are messengers that turn on other uh, components of a system that modulate that system, and so our goal is to do something that turns and modulates either up or modulates down, depending on the situation that we're facing. And then that modulation creates uh, harmony and equilibrium, and then that resets us. And so my goal is always to uh, figure out do we need to modulate up, do we need to modulate down, and, and, do we need, and how can that reset? And then try to figure out how NAD works within that. Yeah, and I, I assume ideally it's allowing, giving the body the resources and the tools to make that decision itself. Because when we start playing God and forcing our body in one direction, we think is better, it's been my experience that that can really result in pretty uh, 
disappointing consequences <laughs> frequently because we don't know what the body needs, needs to do and the body does. So it's just providing the environment that it can go either way it needs to. Right. And so then if you think about the central nervous system, there, uh, in the brain, there are all these different Broadman areas and they all have a different job, let's, let's say. And so just imagine that there was one uh, part of the brain that was traumatized. Let's say that it got, you got a concussion and so there was some brain damage there. That area of the brain can't do its job. So now what we're trying to do is put something IV or uh, put something sub-Q that's going to be absorbed into the bloodstream and, and it, that uh, provides energy that's going to be absorbed through the blood vessels to that area where there was a damage. And, and, and the other thing that it, we can either go down the blood vessel road or you can go down the synergy with other things road because either, both of those are great conversations. Um, uh, and, and I find they're both super profound in terms of how they work. Okay. That's good. So I'm going to just finish up a little bit on AD and then I want to go back into your story, which we, we kind of skipped over. Um, you, you had alluded that, uh, you know, the longevity proteins, which are the the sirtuins are use NAD as a source. So that's kind of a clue. And that's actually one of the reasons why. The sirtuins, the resveratrol was popularized because of its importance with NAD. And, and, and uh, I interviewed Sinclair, who was actually, his lab was, or was associated with uh, Lenny Guarini's lab in the late 90s that actually made that discovery. Um, so one of the other consumers of NAD that's really crucial is this PARP, or poly-ADP ribose polymerase, which is a sucks out really about 150 NAD molecules. I mean, you mentioned alcohol dehydrogenase taking too well. Well, this takes 150 every time you have a single or double-stranded break, and that is a lot of NAD. And the reason I first learned of this is my, my passion in understanding how the damage from EMF works. And it's usually as a result of the consequence of overactivating PARP because the DNA is damaged. And that's where augmenting or replenishing the NAD supply becomes so vital. So, I mean, it is really clear for oxidative stress that damages DNA, but there's other sources of oxidative stress. No matter what the source though, uh, PARP will help repair it, and if you, but it needs NAD as a sirtuin protein. So other nutrients that you can use uh, would be molecular hydrogen and hyperbaric oxygen. And to me, NAD, hyperbaric oxygen, and uh, NAD are the three really vital tools to, to, that you really, one needs to focus on to optimize longevity uh, on top, laid on the foundation of everything else we know about staying healthy. So you actually use, use hyperbaric oxygen in your practice and use it as a tool to recover your health. So let's, why don't you tell us your story about really the motivating catalyst to get you into this type of medical practice that you found, uh, but that I believe you restored your own health using these strategies and then started sharing it with your patients. Yeah, it was, it was super interesting because I uh, was an anesthesiologist. I still am. And uh, one of the things that we do is we stand next to people that are breathing inhalational anesthetics. And then we take the, the tube off and there's a breathing tube or an LMA in 
And then they just start breathing that out. And so for 15 years, I was breathing inhalational anesthetics every day. And I ended up about eight years ago starting to have a little bit of brain fog where I was having a hard time concentrating. And I realized it was, it was that. And so it started me down this journey. And one of the early things that I did is I became uh, uh, certified in hyperbaric medicine and I did uh, 40 dives on myself and it profoundly improved uh, my symptoms. And, and what happens with hyperbaric oxygen is they call it a dive because it, you increase the atmospheric pressure in the chamber that you're in while you're breathing 100% oxygen. And eventually that increases oxygen uh, partial pressure in your body. And at first it's just on your lungs and then it goes into your blood vessels and then eventually it gets into your brain. And so you're increasing the amount of oxygen tension in your brain. And uh, one of the expressions a lot of hyperbaric people will say is oxygen heals. And I definitely think that's true. And then that led me on a journey to everything that I could do adjunctive. And so just, you'll be entertained by this, Joe. For fun, uh, about once a week, I'll do a sub-Q and AD. And so this morning, in preparation for this interview, I uh, took some vitamins. I, I took some trimethylglycine, which we got to talk about with respect to NAD. Mm -hmm. I took uh, sub-Q and AD, and then I got in the hyperbaric chamber for 20 minutes to, pre to prepare oh, for boy. That's great. Did you, and what do you notice after that set of interventions? I, I, I can't imagine feeling better than I feel right now. Okay, great. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing. In fact, I'm so intrigued. I've only recently developed a deep and, and fascinating appreciation for hyperbaric medicine, and I'm actually getting a, a hard shell chamber real soon. Uh, and by the time this interview is aired, I will have had it, no question. So it's, I think it's a crucial part of an anti-aging approach for optimization. But uh, and soft shell chambers are a lot less expensive, but, and that's exactly what you use and still use in your practice. So, I mean, you can get dramatic results with those too. So, um, actually, why don't we finish? So actually let's go back to the NAD because and finish up on that. And we can go with some of these other topics because I, we had a discussion on the phone and I had shared that one of the reasons that high dose niacin is so potentially problematic is that it actually, Cause, well, aside from causing the flushing reaction, which is literally a release of activation of the mast cells, release of histamine, and typically rad radical consumption of methyl groups, which is why you have to be careful. And then, so you took that bit of information, and to the best of my knowledge, are they really the first clinician to apply a strategy to remediate the problems of not niacin, but NAD, which is intriguing because the clinicians I'm aware of think that the side effects from NAD, which which you can describe because you've seen it all the time. I've never, I've never seen it. Um, is typically attributed to adenosine, not to not to methyl depletion, but yet you used it and it seemed to work. So why don't you share share your experience? That was a, a highlight of talking to you for two hours in the airport and and taking notes and then going back and then just like reading papers and and you motivated me because you were telling me how many papers you read and so. And and is so fantastic related to the Sinclair experience of that podcast, which I thought was totally fantastic. Um, when you do an IV infusion of NAD, what happens is it creates a flush-like experience that's very similar to niacin. But you'll experience it in different parts of the body, 
and it correlates to what's going on. So typically people can feel it in their head, they can feel it in their heart, they can feel it in their abdomen. People that have endometriosis will usually feel it in the pelvis, or if they have other pelvic problems, they'll feel it in their pelvis. Uh, and it, it, the intensity of that flushing it correlates very closely with how fast it's going. And so people would have told me they'll feel, it feels almost like a heart attack if it goes too fast. And if you slow it down to a very slow rate, then you'll feel almost nothing. And so the addiction clinics traditionally would do an infusion of a very large dose, but then they would do it for like eight hours. And so these are- And this is IV. This is IV, yeah. And so then you told me this, and then I, it got me thinking about methyl depletion, and it got me thinking, do the other precursors or does NAD have any impact on, on methylation? And then remember that uh, when you talk about NAD levels, there's the NAD level on the plasma, and then there's the NAD level inside the cell. So, and there's a gradient, just like many things in physiology, where the concentration is different. So the concentration inside the cell is uh, 700 to 1. The concentration in the plasma is somewhere between um, uh, uh, 5 and 0.01 to 1. So there's a, Which concentration are you referring to? The NAD plus to NAD? The NAD plus ratio. Okay. So the concentration inside the cell is much higher. And so when you give an IV, I think what happens is there, the NAD starts to get broken down into all of the components. So it's going to be broken down into NR and NMN. And some of the, the increase in NAD that happens intracellularly is going to be uh, from those uh, getting absorbed across the cell and then being converted back into NAD. And then some of it is going to go through an actual transporter into the cell. So then... So, so imagine there's like a cascade of, of uh, reaction of in, into the byproducts that get, uh, it, it gets broken apart, uh, goes into the cell and gets put back together. So then it started me thinking, well, what about methylation? And so then I just started reading, and I, of all ways to give yourself methyl donors, trimethylglycine is the easiest and, and best one to do because it has almost, it has basically no side effects that I could find. Uh, it donates methyl groups. And so then, uh, and you can take and it as glycine, which is a great by itself. I take it every day. Exactly. It's fantastic. And so I just, motivated by you, I, I tried that. And then I went and, and took a bunch of trimethylglycine. Uh, and then I also gave myself some, uh, some other methyl support and then gave myself an NAD IV and basically didn't feel it at all. And I felt better after that NAD IV than any NAD IV that I'd ever done before. And so, you know, and I called Ben Greenfeld and told him, uh, and I told him, I'm gonna tell him, I'm gonna mention it on this podcast, so don't tell anybody. But, and so I got him to do it. And what I um, started doing, and I started doing that with 100% of the people in my practice, and everyone said they felt better, had better outcomes, and uh, had almost no side effects with the IV infusion. So that was super, super interesting to me. I'm super grateful for that, by the way. Well, I'm glad to have catalyzed that, but you're the one who made the contribution, because I actually would have never have thought to do that. It wouldn't make sense to me from what I knew, but you put the two and two together and came up with a 
really an important contribution that I think anyone who's using NAD really needs to start integrating because there's oh, virtually no danger to it. But then the amazing, the amazing thing about that is we had that conversation and kind of basically just figured this out, you know, uh, and so then I'm listening to the podcast the other night that, that you did with Sinclair, and he's taking a high dose NR, and then he went to the literature and said, what can I do to kind of support and protect myself while I'm doing the high dose NR? And he takes trimethylglycine. It just like totally blew me away that we came to a, a similar intellectual uh, strategy for different things, but then consider that I, a lot of IV NAD is getting converted into NR, so it's, it's quite yeah, interesting. Yeah, and then you, you, you kind of flew, flew by this, but one of my, my initial reaction to uh, NAD plus as a, as, a, as a therapeutic intervention was somewhat skewed and clouded because I wasn't a fan of it, and that's really because everything I could read in the literature suggested there wasn't a intercellular transporter so that you can put it in but it's not going to go into the cell where you need it as you mentioned that it's so important to have such a high ratio but then it turns out as you accurately uh, mentioned that there is indeed a transporter that takes it from the blood the blood or the plasma into the cell it's called connexin 43 and uh, so once i learned that then i became a big fan of it and now i think this is really what's required so it's considering that it's such an important molecule i mean obviously we can use interventions and you and i are actually working on strategies to provide nad therapies at a far lower rate because that iv you're referring to are typically a thousand dollars for one iv which is typically never covered by insurance and uh, you know really out of the price range of most people so we're seeking to provide it at a much lower range somewhere about a hundred dollars a month for real for getting things in. I don't know if we'll be able to go that low, but that's our goal. Um, and not being a precursor, not NR. We're talking about the real deal. So why don't you discuss some of the other ways that people can increase NAD without using a precursor or the NAD molecule itself? Because there are some things that we can do to increase our NAD levels. Okay. Uh, but but one thing that I'm doing, just to, just to kind of wrap your head around this, before yeah. I go into that is, is that we're, sure. we're teaching courses for people in terms of how to do this. And oh, really? right now that, let's say that that price point is at a thousand. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching doctors all over the country. And uh, I believe that this is gonna get uh, to a lower and lower price point. And I think that we're gonna create ways for people to get that, that IV for hundreds of dollars, if not a hundred dollars. Yeah. And then also remember there's something super interesting about dosing. I had a woman that uh, flew in to take care of one of my other patients, but who's a dear friend of mine that was here yesterday. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, thank you so much for just coming and helping take care of her. So I said, I'll give you a free IV. And so I gave her 50 milligrams of NAD. She'd had a, a baby and hadn't slept for the last six months and was just super stressed. And she 50, in, 50, not 500, five zero? Yeah. And wow. she, came, she came in the, today and she said, I can't remember feeling this good. And a 50 milligram NADIV probably is gonna be in the ballpark of 80 or 100 bucks. And so- Well, but the NAD itself would probably be well under a dollar. I mean, at that 50 milligrams, I'm pretty sure that we can get that into the, to the sub the dollar level, really. Right. I mean, we're, yeah, we're looking for a few dollars a gram is our goal. So, 
Yeah, so then kind of as you kind of see where I'm going, what what my sort of vision is, is that we're going to figure out the right ways to sequence these products, put them together, and then uh, potentially make them much more efficient. So I did my whole protocol with her. And remember that I'm having a conversation that's derivative of addiction. And in addiction, we have a scenario where you have to give people this thousand, a thousand milligrams because they're quote unquote so depleted. But often what I found is in cases of complex illness, in cases of many, many situations, imagine somebody that had a lot of uh, EMF damage. They may have uh, dysfunction of several other symptoms. They may have complex illness. And so I need to, to catalyze and give them something that uh, can turn on PARP so they can repair their DNA. But I may not want to give them too much because if you give people with complex illness, a thousand milligrams, a lot of times those people will get sicker because it'll turn their immune system on and they'll be, start to fight an infection that they hadn't been fighting. So it's very sort of nuanced of how we do it. Um, to answer your question about ways uh, to, to do it naturally, a small amount of uh, NAD comes from tryptophan. Uh, uh, getting the salvage cycle uh, to work uh, is, is another one. Uh, I think probably uh, there's going to be supplements that can help the salvage cycle work better. I think trimethylglycine is one. I found uh, that optimizing methylation uh, helps and I get a bigger bang for my buck. So I'll give people SAMe in addition to that. Um, uh, I, I, I probably, what did I write down? I, I'm sure I wrote down something else. Well, the two other big ones would be exercise and fasting. Oh, for like 10 years is kind of like my entry level into this. Like I started doing yoga. So for 10 years, every Tuesday, I didn't eat. Um, and, and now, interestingly, I'm thinking of that as a similar type of intervention to like an IV NAD. I don't see doing IVs the rest of your life, but it's something that's an input that has a fairly profound impact. And I, I think that... Um, Fasting is totally profound because it has an impact on a multitude of biological systems and, and seems to reset them. And then obviously exercise is the same. And, and if, if I could pick my, most, my two most important interventions, that would be exercise and, and, and fasting probably. And probably yeah. the most studied of interventions too. Yeah, and I'm excited because we had a recent phone call and I inspired you for another area in exercise, which I'm, what I'm recently beyond fascinated with, which is the re blood flow restriction training, uh, basically Katsu, K-A-A-T-S-U, developed by a Japanese researcher 50 years ago and just with extraordinary results that I'm, and there's no studies. This guy, this, the research teams in Japan where it was, was developed has not looked at NAD levels, but I'm, I'm confident that it radically increases NAD levels in addition to exploding your muscle growth. And you're yes. going to do it, which is why I mentioned it. You're actually yeah, it's it's going to get here tomorrow. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, but you know, I've tried that before, and then this is like another. This is what guys like you are doing because I somebody gave me one of those machines. I think the company actually gave me one of those machines like four years ago. And I didn't know as much as I know now, but I also didn't do it right. And so I, I, had, I didn't get the profound improvements that, that you get because 
you you did it right. And so it's and what I feel is happening in sort of this podcasting space is people are like getting the keys to being able to start to figure out what their their formula is to heal themselves. Mm-hmm. And the if as much as as much as NAD and stuff like that is important for longevity. Taking care of your your musculoskeletal state, staying healthy, being vibrant, being able to exercise, and then being able to run around in the world, I think is the most important thing you can do to to be able to maintain vital health to to uh, an age that's way beyond what anybody is, is thinks is possible now. Yeah, and thank you for mentioning that because. You know, I'm just so fascinated with this molecule, but uh, in my fascination and exuberance, I sometimes fail to mention that this is because you've got to do the basics first. It is, it is almost close to worthless if you're not already practicing the disciplines we know so are so effective. So this is optimizing your sleep, intermittent fasting, not eating before you go to bed for at least three hours, and exercise. And if you're not doing that, then if you want to add an idea or any of the precursors, I think you're wasting your time because, or EMF exposure, which is another basic. So, you know, these are all strategies that any idea is on top of that. It's so it's not a magic molecule by itself is going to cure everything you have. But, but I want to get back to your training courses because I was unaware that you offered those. So why don't you talk more about that? Because we have a lot of clinicians watching this and certainly many people who are seeing clinicians and can direct their, practitioner to uh, engage in one of your courses and then also tell us how to find people who have gone through your training. Oh, thanks. You can go to bioresetnetwork.com. And by the time this goes up, we're going to have a full uh, video uh, NAD certification course. And I I go over the science and a lot of what we're talking about. I go over everything that I found to make it work better with less side effects, which I think is important. I go over uh, our protocols of how we give it in combination with other things. So I give it a lot with ketamine. I have a a lady here with PTSD that you're not going to believe this story. Um, uh, I said, would you... Would you ever do ketamine? Would you ever do ketamine without AD? She she was like, can't imagine doing it because it works so much better. Um, and so we're going through protocols of of how to do that, and then well, wait, we well, stop to stop there because many people are not aware of what ketamine is or how it might work in PTSD. So maybe just expand on that a bit. Oh, it's, it's so it's super interesting. When I um, when I was doing anesthesia. I remember one day I had this this 93-year-old guy, and he was pretty fragile, and so I couldn't give him as much anesthesia as he needed because he had like super bad heart disease. So I was titrating what to do, and, and I, I decided I'm going to give him a, a real low, he was a World War II vet, so I said I'm going to give him a real low dose of ketamine just because his heart was so sick I couldn't give him that much anesthesia. and and he he actually woke up laughing as I was pulling the the endotracheal tube out, and he he said he he looked and he looked at the nurses and he looked at me. And he said, "The Germans couldn't kill me, the Koreans couldn't kill me, and you couldn't kill me." And then he just laughed the whole time in the recovery room, and that was my first indication that ketamine, which is an anesthesia drug, 
really makes people feel good. And it turns out that it turns off one of the depression pathways in the brain and it makes people feel really safe. It's like this guy's joking as he's waking up from kind of a life-threatening experience. And so what we do is, is our protocol, one of the many things in our protocol for PTSD is we give an infusion of intravenous ketamine, which we, we give after an NAD infusion. And it, it turns off the depression pathway, Joe, and it seems to... It seems to make people feel really safe. It's a mild psychedelic, and it gives them a, an ability to see that they're going to be okay. And it's one of the most profound things that I do, because if they see and begin to realize they're going to be okay, the, the, the woman that I saw this morning that was a victim of uh, terrible sexual abuse said that for the last 40 years, she hasn't been able to lie down in bed on her back because she thinks at all times that someone's going to attack her. And so she told me that for the last two months, she lies on her back and she feels totally safe and she hasn't thought about that. And she told me to mention it to you. Um, and that's sort of emblematic of the type of things that we're seeing. And, and that, along with kind of how we talked about NAD, is part of a reset that's temporary. We're resetting the biological system and then... Uh, and then sort of supporting it, but just supporting the natural function uh, afterwards. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Thank you for expanding on that. And uh, so you've got a lot of tools in your bag when people come to your clinic. So the NAD, hyperbaric oxygen, the ketamine, but you also have something that's, there are other clinics who use that certainly. You're not the only one, uh, but some you have a, a process called, um, hydrodissection, where uh, you, I think you use primarily for pain relief or orthopedic injuries. And it's a, it's a pretty technical skill that I believe is your training as an anesthesiologist allows you to do it pretty well. Uh, and you do this under ultrasound guidance. So why don't you talk about that? Because I think it's really intriguing uh, resource that you offer to your clinic. Yeah. Uh, hydrodissection is just like the most interesting thing probably in the whole planet as far as i can tell and it's interesting because i am an anesthesiologist and so what when i first learned anesthesia i was in 1998 to 2001 i was we would do uh, injections around nerves and we would anatomically know where that nerve was and then we would have a nerve stimulator and then we would uh, connect it to a needle and then we would go over and then we would touch the nerve. And once the nerve started twitching, then we would know we were right next to the nerve and we put numbing medicine around the nerve. While I was a, a resident, I, it may be one of the first ones, I don't know, me and this Dr. Andy Gray at UCSF did a uh, ultrasound where we, we looked with a cardiac ultrasound at the nerves in the arm and then started to go through and put numbing medicine around those nerves. And so we're in the fat, and there's many people before me that did this because it was, it, was, it was his idea. But um, so we started to have this experience where uh, a nerve lives in a fascial plane. And then, uh, so imagine a nerve is here. You can come in and put a needle in that fascial plane and then surround that nerve with something. It could be local anesthetic. That's what anesthesiologists do. I found out that you could put other things like 5% dextrose, 
whole cell matrix, stem cells, plasma, uh, platelet-rich plasma. I found that you could put that around, uh, even fat actually, which is maybe one of the most interesting ones, and fix. we began to start to fix nerve pain. And once I found that out, within probably three months, I had a full-time practice and wasn't doing anesthesia anymore. It was super crazy. And it's uh, and it, it seems to fix peripheral nerve pain. And sometimes it fixes nerve pain that's from an inflammatory perspective. And sometimes it fixes nerve pain that's just from impingement. For example, at the carpal tunnel, we stick a needle in and we, we put fluid around the, the median nerve. And that's probably uh, going to, depending on what you put around that nerve, be scientifically proven to be much more effective than carpal tunnel surgery. So we, we treat every nerve from head to toe uh, in multiple different locations with multiple different s solutions to turn inflammation off, uh, to relieve entrapment, and to reset that biological system, basically. So one of the most common problems that uh, people see their physician for is low back pain. Uh, and typically... Uh, Many times, actually, it's a result of compression on one of those nerves, the spinal nerves, and pain radiating down the leg. So is that something that can be useful? Is that, that tool useful for this type of problem? And if, if it is, what, what can you name some other common treat, uh, ther uh, illnesses that you're treating with this tool? So, so the, the, the back pain version is super, super interesting. Uh, one of the things I'll do is I'll do a caudal epidural. So I'll stick a needle into the epidural space and then I'll inject a relatively high volume of one of the many solutions that we use and surround all of the nerves. The spinal cord comes down and spreads into a whole bunch of nerves in the lumbar area. And the, the, the anatomical name for it is cauda equina because all of those nerves look like a horse's tail. And so we're actually doing a hydrodissection in the epidural space, and that seems to have a fairly profound effect of resetting the, the actual nerves coming off the end of the spinal cord. Uh, we also do hydrodissection of fascial planes in the back that uh, can be quite profoundly helpful at resetting back pain. We also will uh, use ultrasound to, and fluoroscopy to actually stick a needle into um, uh, the capsule and the facet joints, which are, the, the spine is basically like a tripod, Joe. There's two little um, uh, joints in the back called facet joints, and then one, one big disc in the front, and then in between them is the spinal cord. And so what I do is I figure out what's going on, which nerves are entrapped, which nerves are in pain, and then which muscle groups are involved. And then I either do hydrodissection or I use ultrasound or fluoroscopy guided approaches to put something regenerative there. And if you'll roll with me on this, because I think you're gonna find this super interesting by comparison, what my community's alternate approach to that is. Mm -hmm. sure. Which is, the, the anesthesia pain concept is, is that a lot of people will have uh, pain that's generating from those two joints in the back. And so if two, two parts of my tripod are not working, then it's not stable. And if it's not stable, when force comes up, that creates a torque element that goes through the spinal cord and causes pain and impingement. And so, 
how I was trained, which is it's kind of entertaining, is the idea was, well, I wonder if we could do a nerve block and then put the nerves that go to that facet joint to sleep. It turns out you can. That's called a median branch block. And so then they said, well, oh, I wonder if I killed that nerve, and that's called radiofrequency ablation. And I wonder if that would make it so that people would have less pain because we would fix the pain in that joint by killing the nerve. And so that's one of the dominant approaches to back pain is if people have facet pain, which is a gigantic percentage of all back pain, then what my community does is they try to kill that nerve. Well, imagine if I had pain in my thumb and then what my approach to it was to kill the nerve that went to that joint, then what would happen is for the next year, I would have horrible quality of movement, but I wouldn't feel it. But then when that nerve came back a year later, I'd have much more pain because my joint would be all screwed up. And that's kind of what's going on in sort of the back pain. And it's one of the, one of the myriad of problems that's related to another thing that my community like pretty much created, which was the opioid epidemic. And so what we're trying to do- Don't take credit for that one. I think it had to do with this uh, family in New York, the Sacklers that were largely responsible for marketing to primary care physicians and sending up these mills for, for that was the result of most of it. And I'm sure, I'm sure the anesthesiology community contributed part of it, but it by, by no means was the majority. Well, it, it, I, I still kind of have to take some, not, I, I, I like don't write opioids. That yeah. like, um, I, I'll, I write like three opioid prescriptions a month if somebody has like a real big stem cell thing. But um, I remember it like yesterday because I remember when I was a resident in 2000, this one attending told me that the worst opioid addict you could put to sleep with 10 cc's of fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Now what happened is right at that time we came up with an idea and it was a well-intentioned idea that pain is the fifth vital sign. And so when I was resident, they gave us all of these lectures of pain as the fifth vital sign. And they said, hey, listen, if you want to be a good doctor, you got to monitor pain and treat pain because they said, we've been not treating pain. And so all of the physicians that were trained basically in the last 20 years got this mantra that we have to stamp out pain. And we didn't have a, like what I do now didn't exist when I trained. And so we didn't have regenerative ways to, to do stuff. And opioids was one of the, the few strategies that we had. And, and, and long term, I think opioids are probably the worst mm -hmm. um, drug that exists on, on the planet. And I remember like the first, I remember as clear as like yesterday, my first day of anesthesia training, because you give people these, these opioids and it's just amazing because their pain like goes away. And then the, probably the most famous anesthesiologist in the planet at that time was this guy named Ron Miller, who was one of my mentors, who was the chairman of anesthesia at UCSF. So we finished that first day, it was great. And you're walking around, they say, take your drug box, you gotta go over to this room. So I've got my drug box. I just saw how amazing opioids were. And then they walk into a room and they sit down and they go, we gotta tell you something. And so then, they basically go through a catastrophe of one anesthesia resident after another for the last 
25 years. It was almost like one person every year that basically was the smartest, best doctor that had ever existed and then started doing opioids. Their life went to hell and then they killed themselves accidentally. And it was like one after another. So that was like my first sort of like indication that this drug helps pain, but it, it creates a catastrophe in people's lives. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to get back to the treatment for low back pain. Uh, I oh. skipped over some things. With the hydrodissection, uh, I'm wondering how that, the, your approach works for you know, the herniated disc or the compressed disc that's putting physical pressure on the, the, that nerve. Does it help in that as opposed to the facet syndrome? Okay, so then imagine you've got uh, these two discs, two, two joints in the back, and then my big disc in the front. Yeah, yeah. Probably a third of the time to half of the time to maybe even 70% of the time, and this is what me and a whole bunch of other people are figuring out, if you fix the posterior ligamentous complex, and so there's some ligaments called the iliolumbar ligaments, there's S sacroiliac ligaments, SI joints, the facets. If you fix all of that, a lot of times you stabilize the posterior part so good that that disc herniation in the front will just go back in. And so, and so a lot of, a lot of some of the top people uh, that were doing intradiscal therapies uh, now, as their protocol, will do posterior approaches first because it's very low risk and very, very much easier to do. And, and a, a lot of times I'll, tr I'll do that to get started. However, if there is a, uh, a disc herniation, we, we will uh, use fluoroscopy, which is x-ray, and stick a needle into the disc. And then I'll either put uh, exosomes or, or uh, PRP or bone marrow in, into the disc to try to stabilize that. And, and in some cases, we'll actually put uh, uh, those products in the disc above and below, uh, de depending on, on, on what's happening. Often, I'll also try to treat uh, the nerves around there. So there's some nerves that are in front of the discs, actually, that control your fight or flight nervous system called the sympathetic chain. And that's analogous to the nerves that uh, I inject up here uh, in the neck that actually come from here. And, and so we'll treat those, uh, we'll treat and reset the psoas, we'll treat sort of, uh, try to look and see if, if there is muscle groups that are not working well and start to turn them on by turning the nerves that go to them. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, really putting something good both uh, around the facet joints and in the deep spinal muscles called the multifides that are responsible for most of your proprioception, which is where you are in space. And, and, then, and then in parallel to that, I'm trying to get a sense of what else is going on. Can I give hyperbaric oxygen to, to make the treatment work better? Can I give NAD? A lot of times that will help. Uh, will I do a caudal epidural? Maybe. Uh, uh, a lot of times in people that have had bad chronic pain, we'll give ketamine and ketamine will sort of reset pain and, and that will sort of change the experience. A lot of times they're on high dose pain meds and so we'll use NAD to, to get them off the pain meds. And then uh, it's a case of rinse and repeat. So a lot of, a lot of times people will require more than one, one treatment, but I can't tell you how many people I have that were told there's 
absolute 100% sure you have to have a, a fusion. And they're walking around in no pain. Uh, now, it's, this, is, this is experimental, it's new, and uh, it's a journey, A, to kind of figure out how to do it, and then B, to, to train people to do it, and then to really build the, the solid clinical data that, that proves it, so that just like what I'm doing with NAD, and, and we teach courses on this, and, and probably the best teacher of, of this on the planet is my mentor for ultrasound, Dr. Tom Clark, and he teaches uh, physicians uh, at a, a site called mskus.com. And so we teach uh, there, and we also teach in my office, these approaches and how to do it, and then how to put it all together. Well, thanks for creating that educational framework, because uh, personally, I have a contractor that's working for me, doing a lot of, lot of upgrading in my homes and repairing things. And uh, he came down with really severe back pain. And uh, saw a lot of different local clinicians and finally came to the point, it was intractable. I mean, he was basically laying down crying because he had, he had compression neuropathies. And uh, ultimately wound up getting, because I didn't know what you just shared. I would have directed him to someone who did, did that type of service because I didn't realize that you really had to address the posterior component and the, typically the, the disc pain disappears. So it's sad because he, he like, and, and his experience is no different. I'm confident of probably 99% of the people out there essentially wind up having these uh, fusions or, you know, microlaminectomies. And essentially that's the way that the orthopedic surgeon community addresses these or, or neurosurgeons. I mean, it would be the other group that treats low back pain. But, you know, seeing someone like uh, with your skill set, I think could be a real rational and certainly a safer strategy to addressing this incredibly common problem. Yeah, and then and then imagine, Joe, if 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 we said an NADIB costs a thousand, but that's really an addiction, right? And then I'm figuring out how to do it for hundreds of dollars and teach people all over the world how to do it. In the same way, we're trying to do the same thing on the regenerative front, mm -hmm. and. And I think that, and and I'll, I think that first I'm going to be able to give you better numbers on knees. But I, I think that I, I asked Tom Clark, who's my mentor. I said, "What percentage of back pain uh, that leads to surgery do you think we prevent?" And he says, "I don't know, some close to 100 percent." And so, I, and almost everybody has super high deductibles now. So everybody I know has an eight or ten thousand dollar deductible, and so. Once we start to get uh, at scale amazing products at relatively lower prices, what I think is going to happen is, is we're going to start to do interventions that are way below people's deductibles and then start preventing surgery. And so I like to say that I spent the first half of my life putting people to sleep and having them undergo surgery. And basically, I'm spending the rest of my life waking them up and preventing surgery. <laughs> Interesting. So I mentioned that you're one of four people who I met at uh, Upgrade Labs and of interviewing. And one of the other people I'm interviewing next week, Garrett Saltpeter, who has a company called Neurofit, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're actually familiar with that. And I was intrigued with that also. And, and actually, I don't believe have, a, have that specific equipment, but have worked with it before with a, a clinician in your community who has it and have gotten extraordinary results. So why don't you give us a peek at what NeuroFit is and how it fit into your program of essentially 
I believe it was an amazing story you shared when I was at Upgrade Labs or you shared with me when I was there and how you had a paralyzed person in a wheelchair actually regain some ability to walk. That, it, it was, it was cl close to that. And so then this is a, this is a journey that's um, evolving and complex and e extremely nuanced. And so I want to do, do a credit. Mm -hmm. um, it was a, a kid that heard me on a podcast and he heard me talking about nerve hydrodissection uh, on Ben Greenfield's podcast. And he called me and he said, I think that you can help me because he'd been in a rollover MBA and was uh, a quadriplegic. And he, he was in basically 100% uh, total spasticity all the time. And so he came in and we did uh, uh, a dissection with uh, exosomes around all of the major nerves in his arms uh, and his legs and in the epidural space. And he, it, it, at rest, it, his legs were basically in spasticity, so they were just locked in spasticity all the time. Uh, what happened is, once we did that, he could begin to move his legs, and he hadn't done that in three years. So he started to get this control, and then what, what happened is, he, he went um, uh, from being able to stand in a locked out position with the help of two strong people to being able to do 20 or 30 squats. And then, uh, uh, so that was, that was a pretty interesting experience and all of his neuropathic pain uh, went away. The, the, the device that you mentioned, I don't have that device and I got a treatment at the Bulletproof conference with it one time. So I'm not uh, extraordinarily knowledgeable about it, but what happened is, is this guy uh, got him to, to go and treat him. And what happens is it somehow has an input, this, an electrical input of the, the nerve that goes to a certain part of the body. And so they started training that and, and he definitely had a dramatic improvement on top of what I did, uh, which was super profound. Um, he's, that patient has lost uh, some, but not all of that. And so um, what I realized th through that experience is, is imagine you and I have all kinds of like nerve pain and impingement. It's, it's probably one out of 10 or a two out of 10. Some patients have it at a nine out of 10. Uh, imagine somebody who is a, a, a victim of, of being a quadriplegic. They probably have all the problems that we have times 10 everywhere in every nerve in their body. And so we have to start to figure out what to put in there, what will go in there and, and have an effect that lasts. And so I treated him with exosomes. My next treatment that I'm going to do for him is going to be with placental matrix uh, because the placental matrix actually has is a scaffold that like stays around the nerve and within the sheath and just stays there for a while. So that's very evolving. And I can't really claim a huge amount of success, although we're, we're making changes and he's doing squats, but he's not walking yet. And we have a super far way to go. Yeah, uh, but it's likely will. And even the improvement he's had to date, in my view, I, I don't think would be fair to classify anything other than a miracle if it was 10 years ago.
because the, the tools that you use on him didn't exist and he would still be in pain and crippled up in this wheelchair. So yeah, it was interesting because I did, I, I put, uh, I did a brachial plexus hydrodissection. So I put fluid around the brachial plexus. I told him I've never done this. I've, and I've no, I've done thousands of brachial plexus hydrodissections, but I don't know how this is going to go. And he was like, I'm your guy. We're going to do it. And then he hadn't moved his arm like this in three years. And it was crazy because I did it. And then right as I did it, basically the nerve woke up and he started moving his arm around and his family, everybody, the whole room, including me, started crying. I'd never seen anything like it. So it's, it, it's evolving. We have to get better. We're not where we are. We, we need to be for people. But what, what I feel is, is that there's way more hope than I realized was possible. And what we thought was not fixable, there's all kinds of things that we can fix uh, across the spectrum of biology. Yeah, and I'm likely gonna be going up to your clinic probably before this video gets broadcast. Uh, and uh, in part of that process of preparing for it, one of the questions was any pain that I had. And in, you know, interestingly, at 65 years old, I, I essentially have no pain in my body anywhere which is pretty intriguing. Uh, I, I feel really blessed to do that, but it, it sort of, to me, seems a consequence of following strategies that really pro provide your body with the foundational requirements it needs, you know, including all the ancillary strategies like sleep and exercise and sun exposure and good food. So uh, yeah, no, no pain at all anywhere, which is pretty amazing. So, so that's actually a, a good one, actually, because my experience around that is, is that there's like a trimodal distribution. Mm -hmm. And I'll have some people that come to see me that have gobs of pain, the chronic pain people. Mm -hmm. You got a, a lot of people that have, like almost everybody that comes in with knee pain has some neuropathic pain. And or some nerve pain, and if you don't fix those nerves, they won't get better. I got a hilarious story about that. And then there's a third category of people, and they tend to be people like you. They're the people that are doing everything right, and those people don't have like any nerve pain anywhere in their body. And they're the people that are doing the things that restore NAD naturally: their mm -hmm. sleep, exercise, diet, that that whole thing of not eating before you go to bed, and and so you're sort of solidly in that category, which is, which then that's what makes everything else work. But mm -hmm. then it's super interesting to take that knowledge to the clinic, because if I asked you to do all of those, those, the lifestyle choices that we talked about, maybe you're going to say that I'd, I have some more fun things that I would rather do. <laughs> However, if I said, oh, do all these life, lifestyle choices and you're not going to have a nerve pain in your body. And then here's a couple simple strategies like what we're both working on from kind of a, some supplement things that can optimize things. And then you don't have pain. I think, I, I, I think the world's getting smarter and then it's leading people to make way better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so exciting. It's a real testimony to the uh, intuitive wisdom of the body and and really in its ability to repair and self-repair and regenerate and restore, you know, within the limited parameters we have. And, you know, both of us are big fans of regenerative medicine and, and really ultimately, I think, 
implementing strategies that will get us beyond the biological lifespan limit of 120. And I, I'm pretty confident that the strategies are emerging that are just starting to come out that will actually get us past that limit. But those strategies, I'm also equally confident, will not work at all likely if you're not doing those foundational basics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why, why don't you share your interesting story and then uh, some information how people can find out more about you and even get to your clinic. Oh, the, 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 I met like the, uh, like one of the most, most famous uh, orthopedic surgeon at, at Stanford because some, some uh, Stanford takes care of the warriors and some of my, uh, some of my, um, Patients are owners of the Warriors. Yeah, let, let, let me just interject here because not everyone is a basketball fan, but I believe they've they're like the current reigning basketball champions NBA final. Well, well, the, the the it's going on right now, and we're down, so we need like a major shot. Oh, I didn't even on. realize that. I don't follow basketball anymore since Michael Jordan uh, stopped. We're playing with the Bulls. <laughs> yeah, so we're 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 in dire need of some support. But I I went up and I talked to the this this joint replacement surgeon and and basically i sat down and i explained how uh how perif the peripheral nervous system works and you know traditionally joe neurologists don't have ultrasounds and they don't do the type of treatments that anesthesiologists do and so the the main group of doctors that takes care of peripheral nerves doesn't do hydrodissection so it hasn't been like really embraced as part of like the norm of traditional medicine, even though what we do is very derivative of something super normal, like regional anesthesia. So I started to explain nerves and neuropathic pain, and I started to explain why uh, people have nerve pain after total joint replacement that's often uh, nerve impingement related or in inflammatory situations in the, the obturator, the, the tibial or the femoral or saphenous nerves. And and it was it was amazing because I still remember he looked over at him. He goes, you know, you know, 30% of the people that we operate on for total knee replacement end up with, you know, chronic knee pain. And he he goes, I think this is why it is. He goes, you want to do a study? And it, this is just sort of a shout out to like the orthopedic community because one thing is is if you start to appropriately treat these nerves beforehand sometimes I, I think that you can have what what anesthesia we like to call preemptive analgesia where you can reset and calm things down uh and and then have people get through a the experience in a better way and then uh, afterwards uh, pick off those nerves and basically just put fluid around the nerves and reset and heal those nerves because we treat a lot of people that have had total joint replacement and as, just sort of tying it in back to like my, I, I, I kind of was like, I've tried to take the day off, but ended up having patients here all, this whole morning. Mm -hmm. And one of them, she goes, hey, you got to mention this. I had a lady that had a huge surgery and uh, she was a friend of mine. So I told her, come down and we'll do NADIVs and hyperbaric oxygen and uh, uh, basically everything that I do for a week before and then you'll have the surgery. And basically, they were freaking out in the recovery room because it was a huge surgery. And usually in the recovery room for uh, uh, like hours, and you're in the hospital for days and all this stuff. And she got out of the recovery room uh, 
in 45 minutes and went home uh, the next morning and it hasn't taken any pain meds and they're kind of freaking out. They're like, why is this happening? And every other surgery she woke up from, uh, it took her six months to recover from. And I always thought, Joe, it's just the craziest thing. I always, people would say, people would come to see me when I was an anesthesiologist and they would say, oh yeah, I have that thing. I, I'll, I'll have anesthesia and I'll be, I'll have brain fog for six months. And I, I did I had no idea what to do about that uh, or how to approach it. And then now to begin to realize this, these tools that we're talking about, uh, you can apply, they need to be applied to every single discipline within medicine. And then we need to begin to think not about uh, alternative or integrative medicine, but just medicine and, and then doing the best possible thing at, at the right time for the right person. So that was a fascinating story of one of the relatively unknown benefits of hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, and NAD, but I, I think a big part of it was the, the hyperbaric oxygen is to giving a pre-surgery. Now we know that hyperbaric oxygen works for, I mean, it's approved for 17 clinical conditions and it actually insurance covers it. But for most of the conditions, it's, it's not covered by insurance, like in this application you just described. So you have to pay for it out of pocket. But I think that it's only the tip of the iceberg of what it's doing. And you know, that's why I'm so intrigued and, and virtually no one is studying for its anti-aging benefits. And I didn't really appreciate that until recently that it's a potent anti-inflammatory, that it removes senescent cells, that it increases stem cell activation. Imagine that. So these are three powerful benefits of doing it in addition to improving your cognitive function and, and probably eliminating the likelihood of assuming you're doing everything else right of ever having Alzheimer's. And, you know, probably cancer because, you know, regular hyperbaric oxygen is, is a really such an important component of a, a, an optimal anti-cancer strategy. Uh, not anti-cancer, but a cancer treatment strategy. Uh, I mean, it's certainly not useful all alone, but integrated with other tools can be highly, highly effective. Okay. I love everything that you said. So I'll, I'll walk you through those things. So hyperbaric oxygen, the super interesting thing about that is, is that the pressure is high. And so with that, but it's, it's not that high. So it doesn't impact the amount of blood that gets into the brain or into a tissue. However, because there's increased pressure, that increased pressure is pressing and pushing to move fluid back out. So what happens is, is in this case, which is the pre-surgery, which I think is super interesting, uh, for a week before and then a week after, what I'm doing is I'm helping to get the lymph to drain. And then so, so, so that's super important uh, because I'm going to make you as healthy as you possibly can be up front. And then uh, number two, you're going to be super prepared to detox the anesthesia that's, that's going in. Uh, and then number three, what inhalational anesthetics do is they go in and then they disrupt the, the lipid bilayer. And so they're in there. It's probably not inconceivable that, that some of them may stay in there or may, it, it, it may, may cause dysfunction in the drainage and lymphatic drainage. And so being able to do it afterwards in the setting of being fully detoxed uh, is helpful. Um, I'm positive that the NAD was, was very important 
synergistically it, it with hyperbaric in terms of being able to detox all of uh, the the drugs that she was exposed to because it was radically different sort of than than anything else. Now then, imagine. Let, let me just interrupt for a moment and just to inter insert that because many people aren't aware of this is that NAD and NADPH go hand in hand and you need NADPH to detox. If you do not have to have NADPH, you will not, those detoxification pathways simply cannot work. So I couldn't agree more. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. This is a good one. Um, one of the other things that I do is I'll do, uh, I give people detox support after the NADIV. This is that's super critical because yeah. you have to you have to you have to you're mobilizing basically there's liver's ability to to detox all this stuff and push it into the gallbladder and push yeah. it into their gut. If you don't put something in their gut that's going to catch that, and so I'll, I'll use activated charcoal, then that's it's just going to get reabsorbed. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, you have, to, you have to make sure you don't take it with uh, supplements or drugs <laughs> because it's going to absorb the drugs too. Exactly. And, and so then, now, then take that conversation and then let's try to say something derivative of that, which is, is that all of us probably have episodes or moments where we get inflammation in the brain and then we get blocks to the ability of the brain to uh, detox and, and, and uh, have lymphatic drainage just fully pull, pull all of that out. And that exists probably like a spectrum. Everything is a spectrum, like kind of like autism and Asperger's. Some people will have uh, a little bit of a difficulty with that, and they've got a, a mild headache or some, some mild symptoms. Some people have brain fog and they can't get out of bed. Now, if this is an intervention that you can begin to deploy uh, at intervals that starts to reset your systems, and then you're doing things to to optimize the biological systems in general, but you're, my worldview is, is that there's not gonna be a drug that's a miracle drug that you're gonna take the rest of your life. It's actually the opposite because those have all kinds of unintended consequences. And so it's getting your lifestyle right and then finding these appropriate biological tweaks that allow you to heal DNA, DNA breaks activate the, the, the right enzymatic uh, sequences and, 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 and cascades so that, so that that system just functions naturally because the, the, the brain is smarter than the kidney. And they always said in, in medicine that the dumbest kidney is still smarter than the smartest neuro nephrologist. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So that's good. You know, and another another important anti-aging benefit of the hyperbaric that I neglected to mention is that it uh, tends to uh, improve the oxygen supplies and nutrients, as you mentioned. And, and once you have an adequate oxygen supply, and oxygen is used in the mitochondria. And if you don't have enough oxygen, you can't get the energy production optimized the way you need to. So that's really an important variable. Oh, and so then what? So people can look up this guy, Otto Warburg. Because he, so he is one of like the seminary guys in terms of um, NAD. And so he has some amazing research on NAD. But um, uh, his theory, and I think this is probably a reasonable theory. I'm just responding to what you said about uh, oxygen and cancer. His yeah. theory is, is that as we age, we begin to go into anaerobic respiration and, and, and particularly locally in certain parts of the body. 
Well, and, cancer cells for sure. Exactly. And so then what happens is cancer can happen and cancer very many times probably happens in an anaerobic setting. And, yeah. and that may have happened actually because there wasn't enough NAD. The NAD had come down mm -hmm. and, and, and so the, the biochemistry wasn't working quite as well. And so now there's some cellular dysfunction. And if we're running our body without oxygen, we're, we're running at a massive inefficiency. And in that inefficiency, then the immune system isn't doing surveillance as efficiently as it should. And so then cancer happens. And so then this is one of these theories of, of, of cancer. And so then, then the idea is, is to intermittently begin to do things that uh, improve oxygenation all over the body and then to specifically improve oxygenation in areas where there's cancer. And so, but I think it's super important. And this is what I see in medicine right now all the time. People conflate things. So uh, hyperbaric oxygen is an amazing treatment, but it's probably a 5% treatment for cancer. And so, but people will conflate that as if it's a 90% uh, treatment for cancer. Same thing in everything, because whatever they're selling, they're going to sell as a, as a solution. And if you t take a picture of any problem, probably there is 5 or 10% of people that only need a 5% solution. But those are the people then that, that, that they market that they got totally cured from a 5% solution. Yeah. Whereas the reality is, is this oftentimes more nuanced than complex, but yeah, it, it really is an advanced therapy, I, uh, in my view, but an important one. They can really yeah. make a vital difference. All right. How, now, how do we find out uh, more about you if someone's interested in doing that? And in two perspectives, maybe just repeat what you said earlier about your training courses and how to find your clinic. And then maybe even more importantly, because a lot of people are on the East Coast and they're not going to want to fly all the way to the West Coast, so how they might find someone locally with your skill set, because you've prevented a very compelling um, story for uh, really exploring alternatives to conventional strategies that are used pretty much every day and almost everyone for these types of common problems. So many people fail to uh, appreciate that someone with your skill set could, could offer a practical alternative? Uh, so my practice is uh, bioresetmedical.com. And probably 65% of the people who we see fly from all over, different places all over the world, they just kind of, and until sort of the podcast thing, 100% of it was just that a friend that was here. And so bioresetmedical.com, and you can come here, uh, we're training people. I have somebody in the office almost every day sort of watching and learning. And they found us at bioresetnetwork.com. And, uh, and, and, and so we're going to start to list practitioners and, 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 get, and get that word out. But I think that soon uh, there's going to be an army of people out there all over the world doing this type of stuff. And it's just going to be sort of a, a relatively normal standard of care type of uh, approach. Yeah, well, great. Well, thanks for joining us. And I really appreciate everything you're offering. Oh, thank you so much.